And so we are going to be preaching some of the parables this summer because that's what our children are doing when they leave the sanctuary and they're going into what uh, Lisa calls the book club for the summer. So here's a story. A man fell into a pit and couldn't get himself out. A, subje a subjective person came along and said, hey, I really feel for you down there. An objective person came along and said, it's logical that someone would fall down there. A Pharisee said, only bad people fall into pits. A mathematician calculated how we fell into the pit. A news reporter wanted an exclusive story about the before, the during, and the after the pit. A fundamentalist said, you deserve your pit. An IRS man asked if he was paying taxes on his pit. A self-pitying person said, you haven't seen anything until you've seen my pit. A charismatic said, just confess that you're not in the pit. An optimist said, well, you know, things could be worse. A pessimist said, oh, things will get worse. And then Jesus, seeing the man, took him by the hand, and then he lifted him out of the pit. So if you're feeling like you're in the pits today, you've come to the right place because Jesus has been waiting for you to be here. You know, the best-known stories like these parables are sometimes the most difficult to understand because when Jesus preaches and teaches a parable, there's things on the surface that are really obvious that we could just kind of stay there, yet there's so much more between the sentences in this parable. It shows that just exactly. You know, it almost looks like once you read the parable, if you just kind of wanted to summarize it and move on, you would say something like, well, if you're someone in a ditch, you need to get help immediately. And then you better hope that one of the three people that walks by actually stops and tends to you, and the Christian value would be, and that needs to be us. Well, there's a lot more to this parable today. You know, when God came to this earth and created life, God created life to be lived. God created life to be inspiring. And here we have Jesus who now is going from town to town preaching the inspirational love and faith and hope that comes from God. And truly he embodies that. And so now imagine him sitting, telling this parable surrounded by other Jews, he himself a Jew. And what you need to know, first of all, when you look at this parable, is the good Samaritan, when he said those words to them, they probably laughed out loud because the Samaritan and the Jews have been arch enemies for years because they both believed that each one of them was the heir to the blessings and the land that comes from Abraham and Moses. So they could not stand each other. That's why the Good Samaritan is so shocking to Jesus' audience. And what's also interesting for me to note is that uh, the Samaritan is a name that we're actually pretty familiar with today because there are lots of organizations 
that use Samaritan in their heading, typically those organizations that are Christian-based and seek to help others, whether you're talking about foster care or counseling, a variety of other needs that need to be met. And so here we have both groups, the Jews and the Samaritans. And two Jews walk by and don't help, but the Samaritan walks by and does help. And already Jesus is kind of playing with his audience and challenging us. So a closer look inside the parable, you know, it reveals some attitudes that are going on by that cast of characters. So the attitude of the robbers is... What is yours is mine, and I am going to take it from you. And the attitude of the lawyer and the priest, what's mine is mine, and I am going to keep it. And then the attitude of the Samaritan was one of compassion. What is mine is yours, and I am going to share it. Martin Luther King Jr., in April of 1967, he gave an address titled Beyond Vietnam at New York's Riverside Church, and he proclaimed this, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will only be one initial act. One day, the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be beaten and robbed as they make their journey through life. True compassion is more than flinging the coin to a beggar. The person knows her Bible, understands that an edifice that produces beggars needs restructuring. Boom. There you have it. So here's the lawyer. And the lawyer was out to trip Jesus up. And he asked this question, and it's a loaded question because of the audience that's there, especially the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. And the question seems simple. Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's interesting, too, is that Jesus sows consistency because there was another young man who was very rich who came to Jesus and asked him the same question. And then the answer that Jesus gives is the same. We must learn to be a new way for God's people. Remember, the lawyers, those religious leaders, were trained in the law, over 600 laws. And here comes Jesus, honing them down to just two, loving God, loving your neighbor as yourself. So he basically looks at him and says, we have to look at a new way of loving and serving God. We need to be God's people. We need to anticipate the coming of God's kingdom. And how we're going to start that is I'm going to give you a new way to define what it means to be a neighbor. And what that means is that the neighbor not only includes those on your right and your left, but those who are strangers, who are outsiders, who dare I say it, even Samaritans. And Jesus would live that out every day of his ministry. Where did he spend his time? Whose homes did he eat in? Who are the people he called from hillsides and out of trees, from lakes, wherever he went? It was often those sinners, the tax collectors, the ones that society would not acknowledge. 
And so Jesus means we must love our neighbors as ourselves. And then he calls us and challenges us at the end of his parable to go and to do likewise. So we're called to see others, not as good or bad Samaritans, but as people who deserve our presence and our help. That means everybody. You know that old expression, binders, keepers? That's right. Well, that's exactly what we're not called to be, right? When it comes to the kindness of strangers, you know, it's true that you kind of get what you put in into that circumstance. You know, for those people, when you're traveling with family members or friends, there's usually one or two people in any group that's really outgoing. Like when the waitress walks up to the table, they acknowledge the name that they ask how people are doing, that they hold open the doors. And what's really interesting is if you become someone who uh, loves and expends neighborliness to strangers, it comes back to you. If you are someone who goes through the day with blinders on, you never get to receive back what it means to be welcomed by a neighbor, even as you're going about your daily life. What Jesus calls us that to be God's people we have to extend God's hospitality to others, all others. Even when we're traveling down a Jericho road of our own. You know, speaking of that road, the Israelites will still today travel from Galilee to Jerusalem, that direct route, because otherwise it would take them through the West Bank. And the risk of violence still today on that road is extremely high. It's much safer to travel down the Jordan Valley to Jericho because it is not as dangerous, still dangerous, but not like the Jericho Road. So interesting that Jesus would use that Jericho Road because it was common to his audience. The audience already knew there was a traveler traveling down the road to Jericho. The audience would have naturally assumed that's not going to turn out well for that traveler. The road itself has many twists and turns, allowing attackers to literally be behind hills, to be down in valleys, well hidden. It was only a matter of time if you traveled this road alone that you would come upon attackers. And that literally, if they didn't kill you on that road, they would leave you half dead. And that's exactly where Jesus tells us this parable. So here we have this person that's lying on the ground, and now we have people starting to walk by. So why wouldn't the first two men who passed by that beaten man offer help? Well, the priest and then the Levite were both temple officials in their day. They were on their way to Jerusalem, and they had to stay clean without any kind of impurity in order to conduct their roles in the temple. So whether or not they paused, we don't know, but the religious norms of the day, how ironic, was that they couldn't touch this beaten man lest they be unclean and not be able to lead their roles in Jerusalem. Now, of course, we'd like to look back at the story and have them rework that and be rebels and help the man and perhaps leave the leading that day to someone else. But that was actually social convention. 
So again, when the audience heard the story and they heard that those two passed by, they kind of went, okay. And so here comes person number three, the Samaritan. So the listeners of Jesus would expect that that Samaritan would have finished the guy off. I mean, there, were hate, there was hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews, and it was a Jew who was lying half dead on the road. And yet, how amazing that it's the Samaritan who stops and helps. So I started thinking about three qualities to being a good Samaritan that I saw in the Samaritan in this parable, and I came up with three. You ever heard the expression to just be alive? You know, that people who are on fire for Jesus. This morning at 9 o'clock, we got to hear from Christina Walrad, her year with crew. When she came in to tell me about that year before she presented it, she showed me a photo of young adults, of college students in a room. And I said, how many kids are in that room? And she said, well, that's our smaller retreat, 80. 80. And then the larger retreat had over 100 because Christina chose to love her neighbor as herself. So many young people came to Jesus Christ this year. Amazing that we who get to be a part of Christina's life got to watch her and celebrate with her the ministry to college students, which by the way, not a lot of pastors go into that line of work. It's hard, right? So what a blessing. So here's three qualities of a good Samaritan so we can all be one. We need to be alive with our faith, alive with our love, and alive with our hope. So maybe perhaps it's better to say we're good Samaritan disciples of Jesus. So alive with faith repeat after me i am alive with faith, alive with faith. amen there is a sign on the front door of a church that says come in for a faith lift <laughs> i don't know about you but that's why i come to worship every single sunday i need a faith lift it was faith that demanded that the samaritan abandon his own plans and return his full attention to the traveler on the road. You know, only in faith does God's healing power flow. When the Israelites came up to the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army behind them, imagine what it must have been like to go, there's nowhere to go. We're definitely not going to make it. And yet it was faith that God parted that Red Sea that led them to freedom. You know, good Samaritans who are alive with faith and wired for service. My goodness, it's like throwing a stone out into the lake and watching the ripples. Their lives give off. It's almost like it's high voltage. An extra megawatt or two that's always in them that they're ready to go. And even when they're quiet, they still radiate light. They are spiritually on fire, and they have time for God, and they look for God. A good Samaritan disciple is alive with love. Everyone say, I am alive with love. I am alive with love. 
So in the midst of our culture, who at its worst normalizes such self-focused behavior, Jesus shapes us in a dare to live by faith, hope, and love disciple. People who direct inward mobility rather than upward, people who find themselves by losing themselves in others through community and faith building, people with a capacity to suffer for others, people who give cheek to cheek rather than eye for an eye responses to injury, people who live to serve others, who aren't afraid of embracing abundant life, people whose abundance is not a treasure trove that we can close a lid on, but people who are extravagant in their hospitality, who give their faith and hope of love to others. It was love that stopped the Samaritan in his tracks that day on that road when he looked down and saw that man. It was love. Love that reached out and tended to wounds of that hurt traveler. Love that picked him up and put him over his animal, took him to the office of the innkeeper and paid in advance any expenses he would have. That is love. A good Samaritan disciple is alive with hope. Say it with me. I am alive with hope. Hope Hope led that Samaritan to leave the bending traveler in the hands of the innkeeper. Hope gladly paid for all future care for the convalescing man. Pope John Paul II began his papacy in October of 1978 with these words, which by the way, he stole right out of the Bible. Be not afraid. Do you know that it's the term most used in the Old and New Testament? Be not afraid. Some would say today that the world is the Jericho Road. And it's easy to get afraid. It's easy to get anxious about life out there. And yet that's where Jesus calls us to be. And Jesus promises to be with us. Theologian Reuben Aleves distinguishes hope from faith by calling hope hearing the melody of the future. And faith as dancing to that melody in the here and now. I love that. Because you know we're living on the edge. You feel it. On the edge of ecological disaster, on the edge of moral disaster, on the edge of social disasters, on the edge of biological disasters, natural disasters. Yet while standing on the brink, where is the church? Right there. Right there. Because the church still proclaims that Christ in us is greater than anything that the world can dole out. That our hope and our faith and our love in him is what gives him all the glory and keeps us on the path. You know, we are called to be neighbors of the person on our right and our left at any given time. And truly in this congregation, we support each other in a myriad of ways. Jesus wants me and you to be good Samaritans and that in being so, we become Christ in the world today. Imagine me and you being seen as Jesus. 
You know, the Good Samaritan, in fact, is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus' entire existence was centered on being the kind of selfless, self-expanding love to the world and into our lives. Jesus is our Good Samaritan who picks us up, who heals our wounds, who tends to us, who provides for our needs. There was once a rabbi in a small Jewish village in Russia who vanished every Friday morning for several hours. The devoted villagers boasted that during these hours, the rabbi, he must have ascended to heaven to talk to God. A skeptical newcomer determined to discover where that rabbi really was. One Friday morning, the newcomer, he hid near the rabbi's house and he watched him rise, say his prayers, put on the clothes of a peasant. He saw him take an ax. He followed him into the forest. He watched him chop down and gather a large bundle of wood. And then next, the rabbi proceeded to a shack in the poorest section of the village where an old woman lived with her sick son. He left them the wood, which was enough for the week. The rabbi then quietly returned to his own house. The story concludes that the newcomer stayed on in that village. He became a disciple of the rabbi. And whenever he heard one of his fellow villagers say, on Friday morning, our rabbi ascends all the way to heaven, the newcomer quietly would add, if not higher. Let us go and do likewise. Amen.